Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, November the 11th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to alert you to the fact that our next Inside Politics live event is taking place next Thursday, November the 19th at 7pm. And in this crunch week for negotiations on the future trade relationship between Britain and the EU, I'm going to be joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, and by Gideon Rackman, the chief foreign affairs commentator with the Financial Times, to discuss the UK's future place in the world and what it's going to mean for Ireland. To join the audience for this one-off event starting at 7pm, register your place uh, at irishtimes.com slash Britain Beyond Brexit to join us in that video discussion. The price of admission is €20 or it's just €10 for Irish Times subscribers. So remember, that's happening next Thursday the 19th and the address is irishtimes.com slash Britain Beyond Brexit. Hope to see you there. Now, it is almost three months since a dinner held by the Oireachtas Golf Society in a Clifton Hotel kicked off a public outcry that led to the resignation of, among others, a government minister and an EU commissioner. The reverberations have continued since then, and this week they appear to have sparked a potential constitutional crisis with the publication of letters between the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Frank Clark, and recently appointed Supreme Court Justice Seamus Wolfe, who was, of course, among those who attended that particular dinner. I am joined by my colleague, Ruan McCormack, who, among other things, is the author of the definitive history of the Supreme Court. And Ruan, let's start by reminding listeners of the basic timeline here. Sure. The Arachthus Golf Society dinner took place in Clifton in mid-August and immediately led to the resignation of the Minister for Agriculture, Dara Kaliri. Look, I made a big mistake. Um, I shouldn't have gone. I've angered a lot of people. I've stressed a lot of people, a lot of people that had to make very difficult calls in the last six months about family funerals, etc. A week or so later, as the controversy continued to rage, we had the resignation of the European Trade Commissioner, Phil Hogan. Did you resign uh, yourself or did President von der Leyen ask you to resign? I resigned myself. Nobody has to tell me at the end of the day what is the right thing to do. Seamus Wolfe, then a newly appointed Supreme Court judge, was also at the dinner and After Hogan resigned, he was the last heavyweight left standing. Now, the judiciary is a world apart from politics. It's naturally a little less susceptible to public and media pressure, and it moves at a different pace. So not surprisingly, it took a little longer for the controversy over Wolf's attendance to work itself out. But I don't think anyone foresaw that it would drag on as long as it has or become a crisis of the scale the Supreme Court is now contending with. And what were the first steps in that process? Well, Seamus Wolfe issued an apology on August 21st, a few days after the golf dinner, in which he said he attended the dinner based on the understanding that it was within public health guidelines. But he apologised nonetheless for any unintentional breach, as he put it, of the guidelines on his part. Now, that did little to quell the criticism, though at that point, much of the public focus was on the politicians involved. Looking back, I think this was perhaps the first opportunity Wolfe had to come up with a response that eased public concern and took a bit of the heat out of the situation, and he missed that chance. 
Then the Chief Justice, um, Frank Clark, appointed his predecessor, the now retired uh, Susan Denham, to carry out a review and to compile a report on the circumstances of Wolfe's attendance. So what was the outcome of that? Well, Denham concluded that Wolfe did not break the law and that his attendance at the dinner did not breach the separation of powers. She did say he should not have attended the the dinner, although she added that his removal from the court would be, quote, unjust and disproportionate. Now, the story may well have ended there were it not for the transcript of a three-hour meeting between Denham and Wolfe, which was published as an appendix to the report. And we're going to get to the details of that transcript in a minute, but let's stick to the timeline for the moment. What happened next? Denham's report recommended what she called an informal resolution to the affair. This would be led by Frank Clark, the Chief Justice. And so a meeting between Clark and Wolfe was scheduled to take place on Monday, October 6th. With the controversy over the transcript, rumours were beginning to circulate at this point in the in the forecourts that some judges were unhappy with Wolfe's handling of the affair uh, and that some believed he should resign. On October 2nd, three Supreme Court judges, not including the Chief Justice, they met with Wolfe in the forecourts and they told him uh, the view of the court about the situation. Now, we don't know exactly what was said at that meeting, but we do know from documents released this week that Wolfe felt the content, the tone and the demeanour of his colleagues was, quote, unexpected, upsetting and traumatic. He says they set out the court's non-negotiable demands and they told him there would be serious consequences for him and that he wouldn't emerge unscathed from uh, the controversy. Against that backdrop, Wolfe then asked for a postponement of his meeting with the Chief Justice on medical grounds, first until the Friday of that week, then till the following Tuesday, and then again until that Thursday, October 15th. At that stage, a statement was issued in the name of the Chief Justice, saying, quote, Should the meeting not go ahead as scheduled on Thursday, he, the Chief Justice, will make alternative arrangements to convey his final views on the process to Mr Justice Wolfe. Uh, But that particular meeting didn't go ahead either. No. At that point, Wolfe produced a medical report and the meeting had to be delayed indefinitely. It finally took place last week on Thursday. And do we know what was said? Not exactly, but it's clear that the two men did not agree on a path forward because on Monday night, Clark released this explosive correspondence that we've been talking about over the last 24 hours. There were three letters, one from Clark to Wolf, in which Clark tells Wolf in no uncertain terms that he should resign, Wolf's, re- Wolf's response in which he explains why he won't resign, and finally another letter from Clark dated Monday in which he holds his position and confirms he will publish their correspondence. And uh, not to overuse the word, but it seems seems appropriate here, these letters are extraordinary. They are. Um, this is how Clark ended his first letter, and I quote, It is my view and the unanimous view of all the members of the court, including the ex officio members, that the cumulative effect of all of these matters has been to cause a very significant and irreparable damage both to the court and to the relationship within the court, which is essential to the proper functioning of a collegiate court. It is not part of my role to ask, let alone tell you to resign. Resignation is and can only be for the judge him or herself. Regrettably, however, I believe that I should make clear my personal opinion that to avoid continuing serious damage to the judiciary, you should resign. I asked you to reflect on this. You have indicated that you do not intend to resign. Yours sincerely, Frank Clark. So how did it all get to this? Well, the reason, as Clark sees it, is set out in an earlier passage in this letter. He outlines the sanction or the penalty he'd proposed for Wolfe on foot of 
this um, recommendation from Susan Denham that there be some sort of an informal resolution. And the penalty was first that he would not list Wolf to appear on the court until February 2021. And secondly, that Wolf would forego his salary until then. Then Clark more or less says, if it were just the golf dinner scandal that I was dealing with, that sanction would probably be enough. However, and I quote again from the letter, however, it is also necessary for me to deal with the situation as it now is. The manner in which you have met this problem has, in my view, added very substantially to to the damage caused to the court, the judiciary generally, and thus to the administration of justice. So uh, he's saying there that if if you'd handled it better, you could have taken a slap on the wrist, a couple of months on the naughty step, and it would probably be okay. But because of how you have mishandled it, I now think you have to go. Yeah, exactly. He's talking about the way Wolf has defended himself over the scandal, and in particular the tone and tenor of some of the things he said when being interviewed by Susan Denham. Yeah, but as we've heard, Denham was the one appointed by Clark to investigate Wolf's role in the scandal and report back to the court. And and, and she said that, yes, Wolf had made a mistake, but but that he shouldn't have to resign. So so where's the problem? The problem for Wolf is that the day after the report was published by the Judicial Council, the transcript was also released. And when people saw how Wolf had responded to questions put to him by Denham, well, it didn't go down very well. And uh, you've asked two actors to reenact some of the, the important parts of that dialogue so that our listeners can, can better understand what happened in that interview. That's right. The transcript itself is a dialogue between Wolfe and Denham with some interjections from Wolfe's lawyer and the legal advisor to Denham herself. And I guess there are two strands we want to highlight. The first strand is Wolfe's argument that by attending the dinner, he really didn't do anything wrong. In this first excerpt, he tells Denham he didn't know there would be a dinner until the day of the event at the Station House Hotel in Clifton. So what triggered off the dinner issue was, as I checked in and they took the money off me, they handed me some kind of a ticket or a docket or a, a voucher. And they said, this is for dinner. And may- maybe I said, well, what dinner? And they said, dinner tonight in the hotel, the Station House Hotel at 9pm. So now that's really when you first became aware that the dinner is to be held in the Station House at 9 o'clock? Yes. Did you consider phoning the chief or any other member of the court to seek guidance in relation to the dinner? Ah, no. I, I think that would have been ridiculous with respect, Judge. I really do. You know, I, I don't think an adult person on holidays in that kind of a sense would go bothering the chief justice at that stage. Particularly, there was nothing to spark off bother in my mind that there, there was any question going back to him. As I say, I, I take it, and I, I don't know if you'll speak to him, but I take it that he would... I won't speak to anybody. Okay, well, you see, it's kind of important. My assumption is that he knew, or would have known, that there would be some kind of social element to the golf. You don't just go out and play 18 holes of golf. Now, he wouldn't have known precisely the details, because I didn't know them myself, but there was no need to go checking those details with him, either originally or subsequently on the day when I found out. And there was nothing inherently dangerous about the fact there was going to be a dinner. So, as we all know now, but just to recap it, the the golf dinner fell foul of the COVID-19 regulations because the number of attendees was too high. There were 81 attendees, which the organisers had split into two different rooms in order to get around the rule limiting indoor gatherings to 50. Um, Those rooms were separated by a partition and that partition was open for a period during the delivery of speeches and the prize giving. And that created a room with 81 guests plus staff. What does Wolf say about the configuration of all that? Well, you remember first that the event took place on August 19th. That's the day after the Taoiseach Michal Martin announced that due to rising infection rates, 
indoor gatherings could now only have six people, down from 50. Now, in the interview, Wolf tells Denham that he did not know about that change, despite it being big news at the time, because he was on holiday and deliberately switched off from the news. Wolf also relies on the fact that, despite the rule change being announced to the public as coming into effect immediately, for procedural reasons, there would be a couple of days delay before the new rule could take effect in law. So you can see he's making quite a legalistic point there. He also argued that he was reassured by the organisers of the event that everything was in order uh, and that he'd no reason to doubt this, uh, which is something we also heard from other high-profile attendees like Phil Hogan and Dara Kaliri. Yes, yes, it was. But that was his defence for being in attendance and that he was told it was okay, that he trusted the organisers, that he didn't know about the rule change and that even if he had known about it, it wouldn't even have applied yet. Yes. And as we'll hear in this excerpt, he had another line of defence, which was that when the partition was opened between the rooms for the speeches and the prizes, arguably creating a room with 80 plus people, he simply didn't notice. Were you aware when it was open? No, no. Uh, Can I say something, Judge? Yes. I have a pet hate in life about people that don't pay respect to speeches at functions. Yes. As Attorney General, I had this myself and it irritated me a lot. If people make an effort to organise things or make a speech, I believe in watching the speech and keeping quiet until the end of the speech. And I spoke one sentence during the whole of the speeches to Lorraine Higgins on my right. And again, if anything, I was slightly angled towards the right and I, I made some joke about the speeches dragging on a bit. And nothing unusual in that. I mean, did you or do you accept that because this partition is opened, there's a change in the physical configuration of the room? The guideline is separate defined spaces. It's very arguable whether or not opening it for a few moments is a breach of the guideline. If it is, it's a a very, very minuscule breach by the organisers. And how can a guest be responsible for that happening? You didn't notice it? I didn't notice it. I never saw it. And I was tired and, you know, I was chatting. I had a few glasses of wine and it's the end of the night, I hope, or close to it. And I mean, Judge, could I posit the question, what was I supposed to do if I had noticed it? Well, I suppose that comes back to whether there were a few times that you maybe should have considered whether you should have gone to the dinner. I mean, first of all, when you're told about it, should you have had concern about going to the dinner then? Despite the reassurances? That's your answer, of course. Then, when you go into the dinner and look around, should you have reconsidered and left? In circumstances where there was 45 people within the regulations. That's your answer. And then, thirdly, when the door opened, the partition was opened to another room where there were people and somebody was coming in for a prize. Should you have concern at that stage? Okay, can I partly answer that question, the last one? If you go to image 30 on page 22. Yes. If I had seen it, it looks as if I would only have been able to see three seats, three extra diners in there, if I'd seen it. That's one point. Was I then supposed to jump up from the table and try and go in and possibly breach the guidelines myself by breaking the separate defined spaces and examine what was going on in the other room? And where does this notion stop? Was I then to jump over to the organisers and say, hang on a moment, are these people in the other room all part of this function? So was Wolf arguing that it was reasonable that he believed that the event was within the guidelines or that it actually was within the rules? That it was within the rules. Because, he said, contrary to what everyone assumed, the new rules had not yet taken effect. Then let's go back now to the letter that Frank Clark sent to Wolf that was published last night. 
In it, he says about Seamus Wolfe's arguments in his defence that, and I quote, the concentration on narrow and technical issues rather than recognising the serious public concern and the consequent damage to the court has only added to the seriousness of the situation. So it doesn't sound like he's convinced by any of this. No, it doesn't. Um, In this letter, Clark says a judge, I quote, should not attend any event which is organised in breach of the law or where there may be a reasonable public perception that this is so. To do so brings the law into disrepute and is therefore a serious breach of judicial ethics. So he pours water on the on the idea that it matters at all that the regulations may not have taken effect, saying such guidelines, when announced, do not have the immediate force of law. However, they must be seen as reflecting the urgent advice of public health experts in the context of a highly contagious disease. He finishes this part of the letter by saying, quote, a failure by a judge to observe these principles can lead to serious damage to public trust in and respect for the judiciary. This has occurred in this case at a time when trust and confidence in the institutions of the state and social solidarity more generally is particularly important, end quote. So as a result of all of this, we know Clark decided there would be two penalties. Wolf would not be allowed to sit on the court until next February and he would be asked to forego his salary until then. And that is where the matter might have ended, but but it didn't. Right. And this brings us to, to the second strand of the excerpts we want to play, because there's another aspect to Wolf's now infamous conversation with Susan Denham that Clark finds even more troubling. And that is the way that Wolf fails to fully understand or acknowledge, as he sees it, the problem with his own behaviour, and seems to blame the media for whipping up a frenzy over nothing. Can I make another point? I'll try and stay calm about it because this is upsetting. With the benefit of hindsight, of course, I would not have gone to the dinner because of the vilification that I have suffered in the media since the complete lack of fair procedures by the media and numerous politicians, including... And I would not have inflicted that unjust attack on my good name, on myself, my my family, my friends, my colleagues and the judiciary. And this prejudgment by media and politicians that don't know any of the facts and they have shown no interest in knowing them. And other than this form, Judge, I'm grateful to you. Can I just make this comment? As a judge, I don't regard myself as a part of an elite, the way the media describe it, that is above the law or above guidelines. I don't think most judges do either. No. But what I do insist upon is that judges have no less constitutional rights than anybody else and have a right to fair procedures, and have a right to their good name. And if not judge, I did a lot of work as Attorney General trying to persuade people to become judges, and I I think people have said I've had some success getting good quality of people. If not, nobody would become a judge ever again if there's not a fair and reasonable assessment of what went on here. Yes. And I am relying on you, judge. The Constitution says the state will vindicate your own good name, and unfortunately, even though you've retired, I'm relying upon you, judge to vindicate my good name. Well now, let's just keep going. Yes. So it strikes me listening to some of that that it's highly unusual for us to hear from a sitting Supreme Court judge in such a way, isn't it? He's angry at times. It seems like he's a little bit emotional. He's castigating the media. He's being quite critical of his fellow judges for, he says, prejudging him. And perhaps most unusually, he's being very critical of politicians. It's not that judges don't get angry or emotional. Of course they do. It's that we don't usually see all that anger and emotion laid out before us as we do in this transcript. There's a moment towards the end of the interview where uh, he rounds on the media 
and questions the role of Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar and their failure to, as he sees it, deal with the incident based on the facts as opposed to the hysterical outcry. And this next part, we can deduce, would have contributed to Frank Clark arriving at the conclusion that Wolf's position was untenable. I mean, I can't do anything about completely false reporting that fails to check out the facts and that boasts about the fact that they had a scoop and they got rid of the minister and says the next is the commissioner and the next is the judge and everybody's got to resign and along the way makes no effort. Donny Cassidy, one of the organisers who I had to check some details with, he told me that nobody in a senior position has ever asked him for the facts. Nobody in government. The Taoiseach never asked him for an account of the facts. And one thing that worries me is my understanding that as of last week, one of the organisers told me that the Tonishta at a meeting was insisting that the relevant rule was six people on that Wednesday night and that's why Minister Kaliri was forced to resign. I mean, if the governments themselves don't understand or if the Attorney General can't explain it to them, I'm sure he's trying hard, what hope have we got? Clark sees all of this as evidence that Wolf doesn't get it, that he doesn't get why people are so angry and upset by all of this. Of that transcript, he writes, quote, That account appeared to show that you did not appreciate the genuine public concern about the event and your attendance at it, but rather continued to put the controversy down to a media frenzy. Indeed, your statement that you did not understand what you were apologising for at the time when you issued your limited apology would now significantly devalue any further apology. There would be legitimate public scepticism about the genuineness of any such apology. He goes on to say, and I quote again, You commented adversely on the government's management of the public health crisis and made remarks critical of the Taoiseach and many other office holders, which, as a result of both their tone and content, created further genuine controversy. It is a long-standing and important aspect of the reciprocal respect due to the institutions of the state to each other that judges do not engage in or give rise to matters of controversy, most particularly involving the other branches. So... Three letters were released on Monday night. Uh, Clark's to Wolf, which we've now heard a lot from. What about Wolf's response? What did he say? The first letter we've been talking about from Clark was dated November 5th, a Thursday. Then on November 9th, the following Monday, Wolf responds to Clark by email with a very long nine-page letter of his own. He repeats a lot of what he said previously. He apologises for going to the dinner. He accepts Denham's conclusions. He writes of his profound regret at the hurt he caused and the damage to the court. He says he would accept the reprimand if, as he puts it, that would ensure resolution of this matter. So at this stage, Wolf is aware that Clark is proposing to publish their correspondence. Yes, and he's aware that that correspondence would include the sensational news that Clark was calling for him to resign. So what Wolf tries to do is to persuade Clark not to publish. He says this is part of an internal process, it's private, and it would serve no public good for everyone to know that we disagreed about whether I should remain on the court. His suggestion for bringing an end to the matter is that he issue a public apology and that the details of the agreed reprimand be made public. At the same time, knowing that Clark might publish the correspondence, Wolf revisits some of the arguments over the dinner and takes issue with how Clark characterises certain aspects of it. He challenges the idea that he focused on narrow technical points, arguing that these points were precisely those that dominated the public discussion of the dinner early on, how many people were in the room, whether it was illegal and so on. For example, he argues that because he was not aware of the change in public health regulations around the number of people who could meet, remember he told Susan Denham that he'd switched off from the news because he was on holiday, because of that, he was not aware of the rule change and Clark should not criticise him for disrespecting those rules. As for his comments about government, 
Wolf points out that he didn't make these remarks publicly. He made them in a private interview with Susan Denham, which the judiciary then decided to make public. And again, he explains that he has decided not to resign. And he clearly, very clearly, feels aggrieved at how he's been treated by the Chief Justice. Yes, he says that this so-called informal process has consisted of Clark simply telling him what was going to happen. He also accuses Clark of having moved the goalposts without discussing the whole controversy with him at all. I quote, You formed your personal view that I should resign without even discussing with me the shift in the goalposts when, faced with Miss Justice Susan Denham's unequivocal view that my attendance at the dinner did not warrant my resignation, you grounded your call for my resignation on how I had defended myself. He goes on, It is, on any view, surprising that something so serious as a Chief Justice calling on a fellow member of the Supreme Court to resign, and apparently intending to do so publicly, should occur without the Chief Justice even discussing the matter in advance with the judge in question, or hearing what the judge might have to say on a point of significant concern to his livelihood, his reputation and his mental health. And that was last Monday, and a few hours later, Clark emails Wolf back, and this is the the third and final letter in the published sequence. What does he say? Clark says he still plans to publish their correspondence. He doesn't revisit the substance of the argument, but he does say that it's not feasible or realistic to attempt to separate each individual issue and argue whether it in itself would justify resignation. He says, It is the cumulative effect of this serious controversy that I have had to consider. That cannot be fairly characterised as a shift in the goalposts, he tells Wolfe. On the fact that so much seems to have turned on that transcript of the Denham-Wolfe interview... Clark says Wolfe was asked in advance of publication and agreed to the transcript being released. And even if you thought you were expressing these views in private, he says, it's not possible to treat them as not having been expressed. Clark acknowledges Wolfe's apology and his regret, and he notes that Wolfe has now accepted the bulk of what Clark has suggested as a resolution. But then he adds, these in themselves are welcome developments, although I regret to say somewhat undermined by your apparent insistence that nothing you have done merits reprimand criticism or apology and indeed your continuing desire to place responsibility elsewhere. So Clark still believes that Wolf just doesn't get it? Yes. He says one minute you're offering to apologise publicly and make amends but the next you're maintaining you did little wrong. Clark writes I do not think that's sufficient to restore public confidence. While I accept that some of the media commentary was hurtful that commentary reflected a lack of insight and understanding on your part of the public reaction. These are matters which affect public trust. So there's an awful lot in there. Uh, there's an awful lot to chew over. Um, there do seem to be, to be some things which are which are clear and which are broadly accepted by by both parties and uh, more widely that you know that um, that Justice Wolf made a mistake in going to and participating in this event. Um, that he was perhaps slow uh, to apologise and his initial response wasn't really what should have been expected from somebody in his position, that that merited some form of of reprimand um, from the Chief Justice and his colleagues on the Supreme Court. Um, That was recommended by Susan Denham's um, ultimate report after after the interview. And that's then where we diverge is on that point beyond that, the seriousness of his transgression and the level of punishment which it merits. I think that's right. I mean, it's important to remember that, to all intents and purposes, this relationship appears to have broken down. You know, there has been communication between uh, the Supreme Court and and uh, Seamus Wolfe over the last couple of weeks, but the relationship is extremely strained, as we can see in, in those letters. Remember, what we have seen, the letters we have 
are a partial record of uh, the correspondence between Frank Clark and Seamus Wolfe uh, over the last few weeks. There are also some documents from the Denham Review that haven't been made publicly available. So, you know, our view is partial, but we can see that the relationship has, has to all intents and purposes, broken down. Um, even were it not for that, it's clear that the two sides are at cross purposes. Seamus Wolfe is understandably keen to focus on each individual charge against him, each individual claim, uh, and to defend himself on that basis. Whereas Clark, uh, and we can assume the rest of the court, I think, are regarded more as a as an accumulation of uh, of, of things. So you know, a lot hinges on the transcript on what emerged about uh, Seamus Wolfe's defence of his own behaviour um, on his own interactions with the court. And so they are not no longer interested in in arguing each individual point. They say the damage to the institution of the Supreme Court and to the judiciary in general is such that there's really nowhere else for this to go. Whereas Seamus Wolfe feels aggrieved and wants to argue each individual point because he feels when you do that, he emerges pretty well out of it. One thing I, I really am unclear on, and uh, I mean, we mentioned at the at the top of this podcast that it's an extraordinary insight uh, or an extraordinary lifting of the veil on the kind of the personalities of these these people who are usually very private in their in their dealings and, and appropriately so. Um, Susan Denham represented that uh, Seamus Wolfe would be disciplined, but uh, but that he should keep his position. Um, Susan Denham's report included the appendix, which was the transcript. It seems to me that the transcript is what then made the situation worse for Seamus Wolfe. But presumably Susan Denham took that into account when making her recommendations. So why did things get worse for Seamus Wolfe? Or is it, is it the case that Susan Denham's recommendation was rejected? The Supreme Court accepted the report and the recommendations that Susan Denham made. Um, and Clark, in his letters to Wolf, says that uh, matters would have ended there, you know, assuming that Wolf had accepted uh, the reprimand that uh, that Clark had come up with as part of this informal resolution. The problem for the court, as it sees it, is that the release of the transcript generated this huge public controversy. Uh, people felt that uh, that Wolf had acquitted himself badly in that exchange with Denham, you know, that he really shouldn't have gone near criticising the government, that he uh, vastly overstated the uh, media frenzy that was whipped up. And even if you accept that the government uh, didn't get everything right, uh, there was, I think a lot of people concluded, little sense from the transcript that Seamus Wolfe grasped why the public anger was as it was after the um, after the story about Golfgate emerged, you know, that he failed to get it, that he didn't understand why people felt so angry uh, and that it was that failure of insight, that that lack of self-awareness that caused him the most trouble. And uh, and that's as may be. And I think you could, lots of people reading that transcript could come to the same conclusion, but Susan Denham obviously was actually, you know, involved in in producing the transcript in the first place. And, and I think at one point there, you said that it was the public reaction to the transcript that drove this story further. Yes, if you're the Chief Justice, if you're the Supreme Court, and you're fixated on the reputation of the institution and the good standing of the court, you this is how they would argue it. You would not simply be taking into effect. You would not simply be taking into account 
the words on the page of the Denham report. You would be looking at everything. You would be looking at the public discussion. You would be looking at the the, the, the the wider debate that's taking place. You would be looking at the perception that the report plus the transcript plus Seamus Wolfe's uh, response to the uh, controversy in general would be creating. And all of that, when you take it cumulatively in the Supreme Court's view, or certainly in the Chief Justice's view, created an untenable position for Seamus Wolfe. But Seamus Wolfe's position, and I have to confess I have some sympathy for this, is that the decision to publish first the transcript and then this, um, you know, really very intense and sometimes quite emotional uh, correspondence actually drives uh, actually drives that process. It was those decisions to publish that have uh, that have arrived that has brought us to this pass that we're at now, as well as his own behaviour. Yeah, and there are those within the legal world and in the Oireachtas who feel the Chief Justice has overreached in, in publishing these letters, that in going public in this way, letting everyone know he thinks Wolf should resign and that the relationship has broken down, that he's made a bad situation worse. They argue that by Monday, the day of the final exchange of emails between the two men, by that stage, Wolf had accepted the sanctions that Clark had proposed as part of his informal resolution. You know, okay, there was a, still a bit of a dispute over whether uh, whether Wolf would give his salary for those three months back to the exchequer or whether he'd give it to a charity of his choice. But, you know, on the essential points, he had he had agreed by that stage to the sanctions. So why this line of argument goes, why once that had been agreed, would Clark then set off this bomb, a bomb with a really wide blast radius? On the other side of the argument, many people feel Clark was left with few attractive options. Um, you know, that he didn't do this impulsively, that it was on the cards for some time, that it was discussed within the court. Um, there have been differing views within the court on various aspects of the controversy over the last couple of months, but by Monday they were united on what had to happen. Um there's a really interesting line midway through Clark's final letter, which I think goes some way to explaining why he felt he had to do this. At this point, he's just said that Wolf's real gripe, in his opinion, is not that the Supreme Court won't listen to his side of the story, but rather that they won't accept his benign view of events. And he says, I do recognise that the events which have occurred and the protracted process are a source of damage to the judiciary and the Supreme Court in particular. But I have to say that I think it would be more damaging to the court if I were to either simply accept your view or perhaps worse, be seen as willing to permit the false impression to be given that I did so. So in other words, the damage to the institution would be far greater if the public were to believe that we thought your behaviour was okay. So uh, what happens now? I think there are four broad scenarios. The first is that nothing happens. Um, Wolf decides to stay put. The Oireachtas decides not to impeach. Wolf then lies low for a few months, foregoes his salary and sits on the court from next February. Um, he and his colleagues find a way to work together in this scenario. Uh, early passive aggression gives way to some degree of civility and the institution manages to truck along despite everything. That's possibly less far-fetched than people might think. It's a, re- it's a resilient uh, institution. The second scenario is that Wolf resigns. Um, that brings an end to the controversy immediately. It leaves Wolf himself with an intense feeling of grievance over his treatment, but the court reverts to the comfort of its relative public obscurity and politicians in Leinster House are let off the hook. Um, the third scenario is, I think, that the court takes some form of further action. So in the event that Wolf digs in and the Iraq steps back from impeachment, I wouldn't entirely rule out some further form of action from the court. Uh, I don't know what that might be. At the lower end, it could be the release of further correspondence or documentation that would change the picture again. Or at the upper end, it could be um, a threat of resignation. It could be a resignation or resignations from the court. And the fourth um, scenario, obviously, is impeachment. 
I think this could go either way. I think viewed one way, this is the only way the story can end, given that the judiciary is powerless now and this standoff is causing ongoing damage. But I don't think politicians are of, a, of one view on this. I think um, there's not much politically to be gained from it for most of them. Um, I think many of them resent being put in this position. You know, most politicians don't have much interest in or knowledge in the judiciary. Um, they just want the judges to go ahead, go on with their work quietly and they're happy not to intrude too much on their patch. Um, I think many politicians will balk at the idea of sitting in judgment on a senior judge and certainly in circumstances as fraught as this. I think there will be an intense debate over whether this is really the type of case that was envisaged when the draft when the drafters of the 1937 constitution came up with the phrase stated misbehavior as grounds for removing a judge from office. I think it would be politically fraught and legally difficult as well, especially in circumstances where the former chief justice, as you say, has said this is not a resigning offense. And at least one other judge in the court has said the same to Wolf. I think a lot of people will argue that the impeachment provision was intended for wrongdoing at the upper end of the scale. So I'm thinking of judicial insider trading, a criminal offence, inappropriate communication with a litigant, that sort of thing. So even if uh, a motion motion of impeachment is tabled, it will be a drawn-out process that will not necessarily have a clear-cut outcome. A last thought, Rune, if it did come to impeachment, it would be no more than the political establishment in Ireland deserves, would it? Because really the reason why we're faced with, with these vistas now is because of lengthy foot-dragging over introducing some kind of a system to deal with these kind of instances within the judiciary. I think that's absolutely right. There has been a debate going on about the creation of a judicial council or a body that would regulate judicial conduct and discipline for more than 20 years. Um, there has never been the, the the will or the wherewithal within successive governments to uh, to to bring that to fruition. We now have a judicial council um, as of last year, but it's not fully operational, and so uh, it wasn't in a position to to deal with this uh, uh, this controversy when it when it erupted. So I think you're absolutely right. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have rotated power for the last twenty years while that debate has played out, and neither of them managed to. Uh, put in place uh, this institution that everybody knew was needed that would avert exactly this type of crisis that everybody knew would one day come. So I think in a very real sense, the political parties only have themselves to blame. Ruan, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. And I'm joined now by our political editor, Pat Leahy. Uh, Pat Ruan was just telling us that this was a pretty unwelcome vista for the political establishment. I think that the party leaders are meeting today. What are they saying about what's likely to happen? Well, first of all, Hugh, it's just not clear as we speak now that that meeting will take place today. My understanding is that there are efforts to convene it, but it's just not clear exactly at this point if that would take place today or tomorrow. What, whatever happens over the next few hours, I suppose the meeting will take place uh, sooner or later. There is no dodging this decision for the Oireachtas as a whole uh, and and by extension the government because you know Michal Martin has said that he will seek consensus among the party leaders my view is that the only possible consensus uh, would be to proceed with an article 35 motion and i think if that doesn't happen 
than an individual TD. I know that uh, Paul Murphy, the RISE TD, who operates as part of the uh, Solidarity People Before Profit group, um, he and his group are considering uh, putting down their own motion. I would be surprised, though they haven't come to a decision yet, uh, I would be surprised if a motion doesn't materialise either from that quarter or another quarter, even if the party leaders decide against it. And we're all brushing up on our constitution here and so we know what an impeachment involves in terms of the um, a, a committee of inquiry needs to be set up. It'll report to uh, the houses of the Oireachtas. They vote. The Oireachtas essentially acts more like a jury than like a parliament. Ultimately, there are certain questions, things like, you know, the whip should not be applied. People should apply their individual conscience. Um, I, I, I'm just operating on the basis there's no appetite for any of this here. Um, is there a sense that it's going to happen whether people want it or not? I would be surprised, Hugh, if the Article 35 isn't triggered uh, one way or the other, either as part of, you know, a joint approach across the party leaders or by some individual TD. And now if the Article 35, uh, if Article 35 is, is triggered, then the Dáil uh, as a whole must make a decision whether to proceed with it along the lines that you've outlined, setting up the committee and so forth, or to, uh, or to reject it. Rejection is not really something uh, I, I think that very many people around Leinster House that I spoke to uh, expect. I suppose having thrown the issue to the political domain, there is a fear of, uh, in government circles at least, as to what might happen if politicians attempted to uh, avoid dealing with it, if they'd all voted against it. Could that lead to a broader crisis on the Supreme Court resignation of one or more of its members? So I, I think we'll have to, you know, we'll have to wait and see the decisions that are made over the coming hours and uh, and days. But one way or another, I think it would be very surprising if the political system doesn't actually take this on and, uh, and, and, and deal with it. If it decides to do so, if the Dáil votes then to begin the Article 35 process, I suppose then Mr Justice Wolf will have another decision to make. Does he go through with that process and seek to vindicate uh, his his name as he has done forcefully and very strongly throughout this process thus far or or does he see um uh, or, 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 or does he see in, in in the words of more than one person that i've spoken to privately about this over the last 24 hours does he see the writing on the wall and uh, and uh, and seek to resign so a whole heap of uncertainty as to where we are now i would be surprised if this process doesn't proceed in some uh, shape or form and a final thought briefly i mean that uncertainty continues all the way down the line should an impeachment take place it is of of course uh, there are two possible outcomes um, and it might not succeed. There is, Ruan already mentioned, you know, there's some question about whether um, these particular events rise to the standards set by the Constitution. And that was a doubt expressed to me yesterday by people at all levels, ordinary TDs, you know, ministers, you know, officials um, that I spoke to uh, uh, about this, that there's a certain bemusement that this has escalated to the degree that it has and TDs are are unsure that whatever Mr Justice Wolf's sins may be uh, whether they amount to stated misbehavior but it it does seem 
you know, looking at it from a legal point of view, that stated misbehaviour is probably whatever the Oireachtas says it is. And if it decides that this is stated misbehaviour, um, that there is at least a case to answer and that, that process will then uh, proceed along the lines previously outlined. But of course, of course, uh, a committee of the Oireachtas having looked at this issue and made its report, of course, it would be open to TDs to decide that it didn't amount to be misbehaviour of sufficient gravity to warrant the removal of a judge um, for the first time in the history of uh, of the state. And it would be hard to think that the, you know, the framers of the Constitution in putting in this power for the Oireachtas had this sort of thing uh, in mind. But, you know, I suppose, as has been said in many other contexts, we are where we are now and the political world simply has to deal with the issue that is before it now. It's all very interesting indeed. Thanks for that, Pat. OK, we're going to leave it there. A very special thanks to Karen Ardiff and Marcus Lamb, who brought our transcripts to life today. Thanks also to Ruan McCormick and, as usual, to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember that if you do want to get in touch with us, we're always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. Mm-hmm.